Hello and welcome. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Shiloh Logan. We started Latter-day Contemplation to largely explore and document our journey of study and faith as we seek to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in anything that we're going to be talking about, but what we do have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to live a life of peace for ourselves, our families, and our community. We love that you are here, and we hope that you find value in this discussion to enhance and strengthen your own discipleship of Jesus Christ. Well, Riley, we've been talking for a little bit of time here before recording. I'm really excited. This is <laughs> I'm really excited about talking about the Sermon on the Mount today and contemplation and a few in-betweens. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that we didn't record what we just talked about for the last hour, but I think it gave us some good stuff to uh, include in a discussion about uh, this next topic on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. So from last week, we started talking a lot about the Sermon on the Mount and a few things about what the Sermon on the Mount means to us. And the podcast itself is called Latter-day Contemplation. So contemplation, I don't think we really described it very much in the first episode, so I figured we can probably do a little bit right now. But you and I have been on a journey, and there have been a few, there's been a shared people that we've read. We've read uh, Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr, Meister Eckhart. These are some contemplative Christian thinkers, mostly from the Catholic tradition. And these men saw some things that other men haven't seen in the way that we talk to God. What, uh, for you, what is contemplation for you? And how do you, how do you come to your contemplation? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I'm not really sure how I arrived here other than just a culmination of experience. For me, contemplation is just being content and, and content in sitting with the reality of the world as it is the world as it could be, being content with uh, ideas of God and religion and ethics, and and just being okay with the way things are, and you know contemplating them, thinking about them, and and not necessarily making judgments that would be informed by maybe my own ego or my own motivations, but uh, just observing and seeking to learn from the observation. And so that, I think that's a pretty good summation of, of where I am in my own contemplative progression, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm kind of in the same place. When I, when I originally heard the term, I, I looked it up on Wikipedia and I just pulled it up again because I was like, yeah, that, that sounds a lot like what I'm already experiencing. I, I got, my discipleship was already trying to take this turn and I didn't really recognize what was going on. And I was having experiences and and emotions that I didn't really have words for. And so when I read about Christian contemplation, it really spoke to me because it was saying, listen, these these put words to the things I was experiencing. So from the Wikipedia page, it says that Christian contemplation refers to several Christian practices which aim at looking at, gazing at, or being aware of God or the divine. And I was like, yeah. That's what it is for me because in the Sermon on the Mount, I'd been studying the Sermon on the Mount and it had been speaking to me for so long. And it's especially in the, the, first, the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 1 where it says that Christ seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And for whatever reason, just that passage of scripture when it says, and when he was set, like he came up and he sat down. Now that sitting down, 
lot of scholars have been talking about that that's just the, a, a practice of the of their day that the teacher when the teacher is ready to teach he will sit down and that kind of sets the tone for what's about ready to happen but also in going up to this sacred place you know going up into the mountain is always a sacred a sacred way of talking about what is about ready to go on and so when i read this first verse in in the beatitudes in the sermon on the mount it was that i was going up with god to a sacred place and then just sitting with him well and i would i would like to go maybe further back in history than even christ and just just think about the earliest humans think about the version of abraham that we have and and how much time he spent gazing at the stars and becoming familiar with their courses and movements and their patterns and and that's a very very common occurrence in ancient in the ancient world mostly because they just had no distractions and when night rolled around it was night there was no light pollution there was no devices and and so their their entertainment if you will was to look up and when they looked up what can you do except for contemplate the majesty the greatness before you maybe the mystery that's before you, what else can you do except for contemplate and think? You know, these stars over the course of a night, they take so long to move across the sky. But if if you follow a pattern of stars and you watch it move across the sky and you see that happen night after night after night with slight variations over time, boy, what must that be like? You know, and you look at how many religions or, you know, philosophies or whatever are informed by the the movements and patterns and whatnot of the stars, just as a beginning point, you know, you, you walk up to the top of a mountain and even today we can escape somewhat the light pollution that invades our spaces. And if we walk up to the top of a mountain, we can get a sense for what it's like to look up and, and contemplate the grandeur of it all. And that's a very common theme, I think, across all civilizations. And so if I'm if I'm thinking about contemplation, just contemplation by itself, that's the kind of observation that comes to my mind is is seeing nature, seeing the stars, astronomy, that kind of stuff and and watching things unfold before you in patterns and just thinking about it. So if you take the Christian element and you put it on top of that and then you think about, well how did Christ teach? So often he taught through examples that he saw right in front of him, nature. The most readily available example that would be on his left hand, and he looks over there, and it's right there, and he makes an example of it. He makes a teaching of it. And so I think, uh, in some sense, Christ goes to the top of this mountain because he, he really wants to point people up and get in that mood, I guess, of contemplation. Yeah, one of my favorite hymns when it says, O Lord my God, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. For me, it's that awesome wonder. It's mm-hmm. when you're looking up and you're seeing that. I, I've heard it said that nature was the first Bible. And, and that's what came to me when you were mm-hmm. talking about that. It's just, it's really experiencing that nature was that first Bible. It was the first revelatory experience of how they interpreted God. Well, and it was meant to be that way. I mean, where... where... In the story of Adam and Eve, that that wonderful allegorical tale, he places them in in a place that's surrounded. It's nature. It is the beginnings of the world. It's nature all around them. And they're placed there without time to sit and observe, without any kind of prejudgments because they haven't experienced anything yet. Their job is basically to 
sit there and observe and nourish the garden, try to try to improve upon it. But all these things happen spontaneously in the garden. And, and so really, there's not a whole lot for them to do except just be there. Yeah, for the, my whole life, I've recognized that I have really treated the gospel of Jesus Christ as a rationalist approach, something that makes sense. And I've identified within my own experience that this way of coming to the gospel is, it's not a wrong approach, but that there is a more rich and fuller experience to be had. That, that there's, there, there was something more than what I was experiencing. So in, in the last episode, I talked about a story about an interviewer. And since then, uh, we've been able to produce a meme on our, our Facebook page on Latter-day Peace Studies. And Lindsay was able to go out and find the story from Marion D. Hanks, where that actually came from of, of Christ interviewing people and like, what think you of Christ? And the first man didn't really know anything about Christ. The second man had all of this stuff that he could say all intellectually about Christ. He, he had researched everything. But it was the third, the third person, the third traveler, that fell to his knees and immediately started to worship him, recognizing that that was the Savior. That, there was, that there's another way of being able to come into the presence of God and to recognize God than just the rationalist approach. Now, I, I think in a lot of ways, maybe the rationalist approach has to, is one of the most popular or maybe the first stage. Maybe it it's, runs concurrent with everything else. I haven't quite come to that yet. So I don't, I don't even want to, I'm not even in a position to be able to say whether or not you go from one to the other and to the other, or if they all run concurrent at the same time. I don't know. But at least what I know now is that I've started to have experiences with God where there's these these occurrences of awesome wonder to be able to look into the divine and to, and to sit with the divine that way. And for me, it really brings in, because consciously in my conscious world and in my conscious identities, um, I'm completely informed by everything that I know that I know and by things that I know that I don't know. So for instance... I know that I currently live in Bakersfield, California. Like I know that I know that. As sure as I know of anything, I know that. Um, I also know that I don't know advanced calculus. I know that there is a thing called advanced calculus, but I don't know it. I know where to go if I wanted to learn it. I don't, but I know where to go if I wanted to learn it. But then there's this, there's this reality outside of all of my experience, all of my rationalism, everything that I know. My ego, I call my ego Shiloh. And everything that informs my identity and my opinions and everything that I am is everything in that realm of what I know I know and what I know I don't know. But outside of my little bubble, my little ego, to the immensity of the universe is this beautiful wonder of things that I don't even know that I don't even know. I have, I have no context even knowing what I don't even know. So the crossover of that, though, is like, if you think about it, the world, the universe was so big. And for for people to look up at a at a skyscape, for instance, and see billions of stars and they're all rotating in their courses and everything, I think they they can feel pretty small. I think that's how most people describe it is they feel small in the universe, you know. But for the for early people who, who would observe that, they're like, Okay, I'm gonna try to make sense of the thing that is so big that I, I don't understand right now. And that there's like a crossover between trying to be rational about or make sense of all the things that you see in the world and just being in that kind of primitive state of observation. 
and I say primitive, not in any kind of negative connotation there, but I'm just saying kind of like our first experience with God, I guess, is yeah. is just an observation, seeing seeing the things around us and feeling the majesty of it. Like if you ask any person who's religious whatsoever, where do you feel the spirit the most? I mean, what's the most common answer to that question? It's not in like a Sunday school class, although they might feel the spirit in some way there. I think the most common answer is when I'm out in nature. Yeah. Well, that's that's powerful when you think about it, because if the most powerful expression of or feeling of spirituality is is when you're in nature, what does that tell you? Because nature is so much bigger than us. The things all around us, they're so much bigger than us. You know, you climb this massive mountain that's 10,000 or 14,000 feet high or whatever, and you're going, wow, I really accomplished something because I climbed this mountain. Well, there's millions of mountains around the world, right? So you haven't really accomplished a whole lot you've you've taken one step on one little parcel of this earth it's so overwhelming and rationalism i think is the attempt to try to overcome the bigness of the world with your mind and so that's like a crossover it's it's that attempt to make sense of what maybe inherently shouldn't try to be explained yeah wow yeah i hadn't considered that in that way i like that a lot i like that a lot now before we uh we started recording we brought in Thomas Merton. We were talking about Thomas Merton, and there, there's something we need to kind of put as a caveat to us talking about contemplation for those who know far more about this than we do. And one of that, one of those things is an observation that Thomas Merton had made. Now, Thomas Merton is uh, is a Catholic theologian. He and a contemplative, uh, and, and a mystic who recently passed away within the last several decades, and he, man, he just he wrote so much that just speaks to my soul. But in talking about contemplation, he he has a warning. And when uh, our friend Christopher Hurtado ended up sending us these pages about this warning, (laughs) it went right to my soul. And I'm like, oh, oh, I feel that so much. So when we recorded the first time, we talked about us being students in this. We're by no means masters. And in fact, I think if you even cross into the realm of thinking you knowing what you're talking about, you automatically don't. And so that's what Thomas Merton's... uh, his observation was, he says, one of the worst things about an ill-timed effort to share the knowledge of contemplation with other people is that you assume that everybody else will want to see things from your own point of view, when as a matter of fact, they will not. They will raise objections to everything that you have to say, and you will find yourself in a theological controversy, or worse, in a pseudoscientific one. And nothing is more useless for a contemplative than controversy. Because when, when you're standing up and you're just gazing at the stars and you're having that personal experience with the divine through that moment of nature, someone standing right next to you may not be going through the same experience. Can you imagine fighting about the meaning of the universe with someone while you're observing it like that? While you're in the moment, the, the moment that you start a controversy about something like that, you've lost the spirit of it. Like you've completely lost the contemplative spirit of that. Whereas if you're just absorbing it and observing and viewing it for what it is and being in that moment, that's when you feel it. Yeah. And so trying to explain what you think it all means while someone else is sitting there and they're they're debating with you, no, I think it actually is this, and you've lost it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've recognized that in most account encounters when people have said they've been brought into the presence of God or have seen God, one of the very first questions is, well, what does God look like? 
you know, does he have, <laughs> does he have 10 fingers and 10 toes and, 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 and what, uh, what complexion does he have? Does he have long hair? Does he have short hair? What was he wearing? And the, almost overwhelmingly how God is described was I was enveloped in his love and I couldn't experience anything else but with his love. And so it's, it's an experience that when people are brought into the presence of God, it's an experience. It's not this rational, like line for line thing. It's this, they're brought into the, this moment with, with God. So what's the typical next question that someone would ask upon receiving a response like that? I was brought in, I was enveloped by his love. Typically someone who's a rationalist is going to say, well, yeah, but what does that even mean? Right. And, and you've lost it. Yeah. Like right there, you lost it. Yeah. Don't don't try to explain it. Just feel it. Like just reach out for that. Try to feel that and have that experience because sometimes things are better just left unexplained. And so, you know, Thomas Merton, he, in one of his books that I read, the uh, Birds of Appetite, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, he, he talks about Meister Eckhart. And Meister Eckhart, you know, 13th century theologian, he, he talked about the same thing. The, the moment you try to explain something that is by its very nature not meant to be explained you've lost whatever benefit you would have gained from it and you're better off not even trying and and that goes right to your point earlier about the moment you think you've arrived as a contemplative and that you finally get it all yeah you just lost it it's an ongoing growth pattern and you know someone who's called to the path of contemplation knows there's no end to it and you know someone might call you a master but the second you consider yourself a master you're off the path again yeah you know what just came to me when you were talking and this has absolutely nothing to do with anything that we we've, we've discussed and it just came to me as you said that from meister eckhart but it's after the nativity scene in luke chapter two when all of these amazing and wonderful things have happened the shepherds have come in the 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 manger scene all of these things, the, it says in Luke chapter 219, but Mary kept all these things and pondered mm. them in her heart. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it's, it's like that experience. It's that contemplative moment when I can't explain what just happened. Well, didn't the same thing happen right after the Magnificat where she was, you know, basically told what was, what was going to happen to her, you know? And, and she went and visited her cousin Elizabeth, and, and same thing kind of happened, right? She she pondered these things in her heart. She and and that's that's it. That's a great example of of contemplation. Yeah, and and, and even now, it's it's an, another example comes to mind of when in the Book of Mormon, when the the angels that are there with the children, and and they're and it's almost like fire, and it says so great things were there that that tongue could not be able to describe them. Th these are just beyond the ways we have to communicate. We, we cannot communicate these things. I've used the example before of tasting salt. You know, the experience of tasting salt. Yeah, try to explain that. You can't it's salty. Yeah, it's salty, right? <laughs> and it's like, for someone who, I, there was a man I knew in my ward when I lived in Provo who, and I, I don't know if he had cancer in the taste buds or, or something in his nasal cavity, but he had to have his taste buds removed. And, and something about his smell, so he would never be able to smell or taste again. And the last thing that he ate was his wife's cherry pie. And that was his favorite thing in the world. And he nice. had that surgery while I lived there. He was, I know he was 50 years old. And it broke my heart to say, how could you lose the, uh, the sensation of taste and, and, and what that is to taste and to smell? 
And then if you were trying to talk to someone who maybe had lived in that whole human condition their whole life, had never had the experience of tasting, to sit down and say, man, this is salty or sweet. And yeah, so what it, is salty? What is salty? Well, it's salty. Well, what is that? And there are some experiences that words will never communicate the meaning to it. And as soon as you try to find the meaning to it, just like you said, you've lost it. Yeah. So what we try to do all the time is we try to take one experience and relate it to something else and say, well, it's sort of like this. And then people have some context, right? And and so they start to get close to what that thing is, but they never really get the thing itself. So when you say, oh, it's salty. Well, what what is what does it mean to be salty? Well, it's like kind of the opposite of sweet. Oh, I kind of get that. So you're saying it's like bitter. Yeah, it's kind of bitter, you know, but that's not all. You know what I mean? Like, so you approach it, you kind of dance around what it means, but you never really get the essence of the thing itself until you experience it. It's right. So now, now I, th- I think in a contemplative way, when we reapproach the Sermon on the Mount and Christ comes to those... after. The first thing that he does when he goes up onto the mount, he turns around, he sits down, and the very first thing he gives them is the Beatitudes. He gives them the eight Beatitudes, and let's talk about that for a minute, but as soon as he he finishes with the Beatitudes, the first thing he says is, you are the salt of the earth, and if a salt hath lost its savor, wherein shall it be salted? And this is speaking to me differently now because now this salt of the earth, and he's talking about it not in its preservative value, not in its rational value, not in, but it's it's the savor value. That kind of experience. You are the people now who have experienced God in a way that nobody else has. You have now tasted the salt of the gospel. You are now the salt of the earth. And and if you don't have any savor... And, but wait, so he's not telling them to go out and explain to the world what salt means though no he's telling him to be salt just to be salt yeah and, and i love it too because you know if we want to bring this out into a fur- further discussion he's not asking them to be you know the steak he's not asking them to be the the meat and the potatoes or the corn or the vegetables or the main course or even the subwoofer or the platter he's just like no you're you're just that thing that salts things you are just the salt experience of the people who've experienced this it's it's a very humble place to be you know what's crazy about salt, too, is it just makes everything better. Like even <laughs> caramel, right? Right. Something that supposedly is the opposite of salt. It's sweet, but yet it makes it better. It does. <laughs> it brings the sweet out. Yeah, it, it, it enhances everything. So here in the Beatitudes, let's, let's talk a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount in broad terms. You know, when we, when we sat down, we, talk, we figured we can talk about the Sermon on the Mount from kind of a rationalist perspective, because quite frankly, when... When I came to the Sermon on the Mount for the first few times, and I keep on coming back to it and back to it and back to it, and my rationalism was that, well, Matthew 5 through 7 is also repeated in this form in the Book of Mormon. So my rational perspective was, that must mean it's important. And so that at least got me to the place where I started coming back to it over and over and over again, because it's got to be important if you gave the same message here and there. The second thing I started going over through is I started to say, okay, well, if he actually means what he says, this is some pretty interesting stuff. So, as, And then as I started to share these messages as though maybe Christ meant what he said, then all of a sudden I started getting into arguments with people. Well, no, that's not what he meant. This is what he meant over here. This is, you know, because you can't possibly turn the other cheek. 
you know, and then we have to qualify what it means to love your enemy. Then we have to be able to carve out, well, he meant this and not this. And what I started to discover was that all of the caveats that we, through our cultural lens, bring to the Sermon on the Mount, rationally gut it from any of its power. And it's transformative Yeah, it, it's value. that same thing we said early. Once you try to explain it or rationalize it, you lose it. And and I think we do this, and we talked about this in our earlier discussion before the, the recording. We we have this tendency to layer. And, and we layer and layer and layer, and we put things on top of something that is already in and of itself so powerful. And by doing so, we destroy it. When we think we're enhancing it, we, we actually destroy it. And the enhancement that we think we're giving to it is rationality. See, because it's, it's just not practical for us to just turn the other cheek. It's, it's really not. It, it doesn't make any sense for us if someone steals our coat to give them our cloak also. That makes no sense. So that's not rational. But what, what we can make of it is something that we can actually apply to our lives that is practical. So let's do that. Right. And we've lost it. Right. Yeah, we do that a lot. And, and, and another thing that I've noticed that we do is, and, and we'll get into this towards the end, but how rationally we use all of the scriptures surrounding the Sermon on the Mount from the Old Testament and even from the New Testament itself and from the Book of Mormon and from the Doctrine and Covenants from the Hergraf Press. We use all of these scriptures to relegate the Sermon on the Mount away into nothingness as well. You know, if I have a, a dime for every time I've I've heard other scriptures used to counteract what the, the Sermon on the Mount says, I, I would never have to work again. Um, yeah, so it's something along the lines of, you know, Jesus said, and then someone counters, yeah, but, you know, Elijah said, so. Yeah, or or Jesus told Elijah, and Elijah interpreted it this way, and so that's the way it is. And so in this, I, I so said, taking okay. taking secondary or, or tertiary sources over primary. That's right. So for me, there's uh, there's a lot of value here. So let's let's talk about the Beatitudes for a minute. And I know we've t- I've talked about it in in other places. Um, we talked a little bit about last last uh, week. But the Beatitudes really become the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. And I I have read the Beatitudes more now than it, pr- probably any other scripture in the last you know probably the last three months. I've read them more than <laughs> anything else I've read combined. But what I've noticed, and well, maybe it's it'd be beneficial for you just to give a quick primer of why why that is. We've we've been doing this this kind of online or offline discussion about uh, the Beatitudes for a good amount of time. Yeah. So when uh, about a year ago, I ended up starting a group. It was Latter Day. I think it's not Latter Day Nonviolence, Pacifism, and Peace Studies. It's just a Facebook group, and anybody who's listening who's not in it, feel free to join it. And it's really become my favorite group of people and the discussions that are there and just the human empathy and love that we all express for each other there has really transformed my way of, of hope, (laughs) of hope for how things can be. And from that over the last 10 weeks, every Thursday evening, we have had zoom meetings where we have taken the Beatitudes one by one. And we've talked about just the each beatitude in and of itself and its power and how that has transformed our lives and what experiences we're having because of it. And one of the things that we've brought out a lot of is that the beatitudes are very sequential. They're, they start off very sequential anyway. And the 
To be blessed comes from this Greek word basically meaning to be blessed. It's often translated to be happy. But what it's really getting at is it's the essence of experiencing God. Um, Well, even worse, sometimes it's translated as prosperity. Yes. Yeah. And that prosperity is such a loaded word. And and we bring a lot of our ego into that. And there's a lot of philosophy that prosperity is such... I don't want to say it's a bad word because I don't think there's any bad words, but it's just it's a word that we've really taken into being not helpful anymore. But the original Greek is makarios, and it means a state of one who, a state of one who's become a partaker of God to experience the fullness of what God is. So in essence, it's almost to become and to experience that which is God. You know, we talk. I mean, isn't that kind of a a great definition by itself of, of what contemplation is? That's exactly right. Yeah. It's it's that moment of just being with and experiencing God. In in the Latter-day Saint tradition here, we have this very open concept that we will become as our heavenly parents. And yet, in a lot of ways, I think that just rationally, taking that statement as a rational statement as opposed to a contemplative one, we miss out on this whole human life experience that we can be having right now in becoming as our heavenly parents. And I and for me, that's what the Beatitudes are meant to instill. The Beatitudes are meant to bring us into that experience of being with God. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this bringing into the kingdom of heaven is th- the law can only ever bring us to the outside of the kingdom. Because the law, we will always fail by the law. There's no way that we'll ever live the law perfectly. You can set up rules and guess what? I'll find ways to break them. <laughs> it's just the way it goes. But the poor in spirit is this, it's an emptying. You know, we've talked about a lot as an emptying, haven't we? Where we've let go of our ego. We've let go of a lot of these things that we are, our natural identity. Some people call it the natural man. It's identities, opinions, thoughts, anything that bring us into contention with another. It's, It's beliefs that are not in congruence with the mind or will of God. President Benson talked about how pride is enmity. With God, it's the universal sin. It's pitting our will against God. That's what he's talking about being poor in spirit here. It's literally empty. Well, I think it's also something, it also is our ideas. Because our our own ideas don't make space for the reality of who God is. And, And we tend to inform our opinions of God by the things that we want him to be. Yeah. Even even the very fact that I just said him, um, you know, we, we tend to inform our ideas of God by our own motives, I guess. They're at least influenced by that. So when we see paintings of Jesus as a long-haired white European man, much taller than everyone around him, 6'4 at least, right? At least 6'4. I mean, isn't that somewhat at least informed by our desires for what we want him to be. And I, I, I say are collectively recognizing that, you know, I'm in, I'm a white man. Okay. And so that's, that's just interesting. I mean, the, the folks that are, that are making these images have certain desires that they instill in their work of who God is. And I think we do the same thing with God, the father, um, not just Jesus, you know, I think we do that with God, the father. And I hope that wasn't 
blasphemous to, to take his name that way. I, I'm, I'm basically just trying to say that by allowing our ego to inform what we know of God, we're using up valuable space where that he could fill himself. Yeah. You know, Meister Eckhart talks about that emptying, and he says, if you release even your very idea of who God is and his existence, then his free will, his agency, can work within us. There has to be a consistent releasing, a, sur- a surrender. And, and that's really the word I've come to appreciate and to love is a surrender, a surrender to God. And, a sur- and I, I recently was reading in the Book of Mormon when King Lamoni's father makes the statement that he would give away all of his sins to know God. And as a child, when I read that, I was like, man, what a sweet deal. You just stop doing things bad and all of a sudden God gives you everything. And that was the mind of a child. But as I've grown older and I've realized that that is so much deeper, it's literally giving away our omission and our commission, our, uh, the entire way by which we, we interpret and see the world. I will literally give up my whole identity and everything that I think I know that I know. And that's what, when I said, that's what contemplation does for me, my experience with it has been that it has been able to bring me outside of the realm of simply what I know I know and what I know I don't know. And it also brings me into this realm of just experiencing what I don't even know I don't even know. And that that's and, really and hard to rationally the, explain. <laughs> yeah, the contemplative, I think, actively tries to move things from the things he the things he thinks he knows or knows he knows into the realm of the unknown unknown. Yeah. You know, that's an, that's an emptying as well. Um, the, the second we think we have something figured out is when we don't. And, and so I think, I'm not saying we shouldn't seek to learn or that we shouldn't operate or act in our lives according to our best judgment of the way things should be and with our best hopes for how things might turn out. That's that's what we do. That's we do that all day long. Everyone does that. You make a set of decisions throughout the day that you hope will turn out for the best. But the more humble you stay about what you think you know, that that allows for more inspiration to come in. Yeah, you know, and already my rational mind is coming up with a thousand ways of of how this can be misconstrued and misinterpreted. You know, are, are we talking about how, you know, there's no way for us to know anything? No, that's not it at all. And it has nothing to do with, you know, because if any of us lack wisdom, we can ask of God. You know, we have Moroni's exhortation about about having the spirit bear witness to us. That's That has nothing at all to do with what we're, we're, we're talking about. Um, it's, but to your point, what you said right there, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. See, the more knowledge you tend to uh, accumulate, the more you rely on yourself and your own knowledge. And, and I'm not saying that super smart people, you know, we know many of them. Um, I'm not saying that they shouldn't operate according to their best guess and how they should choose one way or the other throughout the day on various decisions they make. But uh, tending to rely too much on our own knowledge crowds out the inspiration. So there's a, there's a bit of a... Uh, a crossroads you have to come to where it's okay to have knowledge, but how much are you going to rely on it versus rely on inspiration? No, to be learned is good, right? If we hearken to the precepts of the experiences that we have of God. Mm-hmm. And, and so in this, when, when we are poor in spirit, this is 
a complete and utter recognition and a surrender that we are nothing of our own and that we and we empty ourselves of all of those ideas and as we empty it God, it allows space for god to be able to put something else there we god can't fill full vessels it's just you know if, if we're if we're set on being impenetrable or of releasing that then then there's nothing that will be filled afterwards but when we release that identity when we that initial my experience in a way has and and i've heard experiences from so many people that that letting go is literally painful it literally and physically affected me it caused me anxiety at times it has caused me physical mourning and sadness where i realize that there are fundamental aspects of my identity that i've assumed over the years that are fundamentally just of my own creation and that actually perpetuate my own sadness like like, like it's my ego that causes my my own experiences that cause me sadness and yet I don't want to get rid of them. It's, it's, I, there's so many examples I could use for my own self, but you know, it, it comes down to there's things that sometimes we need to cut out of our lives. Uh, well, and, and you and I have talked in the past about the importance of identity and how important it is to have a primary identity or, or, or none at all and letting God work within you. I mean, that, that's, I guess, maybe more the contemplative approach, but basically to put those things in order and, and not let your, you know, your lower identities overwhelm your most important primary identity. Exactly right. So when, you know, when we see Lot's wife turn back to Sodom, that, that's that whole going back to our old identities. You know, that, that's the symbolism there. There's a mourning and going and wanting, uh, wanting to go back. And yet we're told that we start with being poor in spirit. We're brought into the kingdom of heaven. There is a mourning that happens for our old identities, for our old selves, for that old thing that we've left behind because we don't have any context to anything else. But yet in that moment as well, it's a moment of meekness because when we were full of our own ego, we, we knew what was. We had all of the rationalism and all the justification for why we believed what we believed and there's no humility there. There's no, there's no actual meekness in our ego. And it takes letting that go until we're brought into a place where we are truly meek because we're nothing. We realize the nothingness of who and what we are, that we've drained that out. We're empty vessels. It's not that we're worthless. It's just we've drained those, ego, those egos and those uh, identities out. But then God comes right along and he says, but blessed are you now who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now I'm able to fill you. And mm. now we become filled with righteousness. Mm. And, and wow, what an experience. And it's just, it, it's, it's so powerful. And once we're filled, you know, like Enos, we begin to wonder, like, how is this even possible to be filled with this joy? You know, Alma says that his pain of his sin and his and his old identity was so painful, but now he was filled with a joy that was more joyful and more powerful than was his pain. And it's the second, it's the next step into, into being merciful, that once you're there and you're looking around and you realize of just the wonder and awe of God, of being who and what God is, it wasn't because of you. All you did was empty. All you did was surrender, and God filled everything there. You didn't earn it. You didn't qualify for it. There was nothing there. You just surrendered what was, what was you were holding on to. Yeah, literally, we're holding on to our pain 
And all God's asking us is to surrender that, and he will fill everything else with it. Well, the only thing we can really give, I mean, Neil Maxwell talked about this all the time. He's like, really, the only thing we have to give God is our will. He, he's got, he doesn't need our possessions. He doesn't need our, uh, our, our worship and devotion. He doesn't need that stuff. The only thing we can give him, the only thing that is of any value we can give him is surrendering our will. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. So, so when we're in that place, we realize that we've been treated with absolute and total mercy and being merciful because we've been, it's that same thing. God loved us. We love because God loved us first. We know mercy because God is merciful with us first. We experience these things because God is already there present with us and within us so that blessed then are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And this is not just a reflection of outer appearances. This isn't just that someone is going around and has started started new habits to where they now have better habits and are doing things better. This is a complete revolution of the in, inner person, of the inside. So lest we forget that, Christ reminds us, no, blessed are the, poor, the pure in heart here. This is not something you're going to fake. This is not something that you can just simply do on your own merit by waking up earlier or working out more or putting on a better show, being 100% in your, in your ministering or in you know, showing up every day for church. This isn't about the outward manifestation. I'm looking here on your heart. Your heart is pure. And when we are that purity of heart, we begin to see God in everything. We begin to see God working in and through all things. And then and only then are we able to see that God is truly a peacemaker. That this entire process that God has in store for us is being a peacemaker. And so when, when we see in the world, the world trying to control the external environment to basically create moments of non-conflict, we call that peace. But that's not the peace that Christ is talking about here in the, in, in the peacemaker. This peacemaker is an internal revolution of becoming completely different people. And the natural manifestation of that is peace. It's not about the old cult, you know, single action revolver. It's not about the, 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 the gun. It's not about missiles. It's not about you know, nuclear capabilities and power of being able to have more nuclear weapons and greater power than another person. So you have some kind of nuclear peace treaty. So, or, you know, this whole power politics. That's not real peace. Real peace is the revolution that comes through the Beatitudes. And then Christ says, you know what? And once you have reached this moment of being a peacemaker, the world is not going to be able to identify who and what you are. You're, you've chosen to be a completely different person on a completely different way of being and contemplating and being with God than anyone else can. You're the salt of the earth here. You are, you are the salt and nobody else has tasted this yet. And you have tasted of it. And you, your best efforts will never be able to explain what it is that just happened to you and who you are now. And so now, as soon as the Beatitudes get through here, Christ says you're going to be persecuted because of being this way, and, but you're, you are the salt of the earth. So the rest of the Sermon on the Mount are for the Beatitude people, those that have already walked this path of contemplation and emptying out and simply being with God. And so that, for me, that's why rationally... It's almost impossible for me now to go through and to rationally understand the Sermon on the Mount. I can talk about it. I've looked into you know, the Greek and gone really back into the Greek, and, and the, I've studied the scholars on it. 
But really, the power for me for the Sermon on the Mount has been in the realms of contemplation. Yeah, experience, like putting yourself in the shoes of the folks that were listening to him in that moment and trying to experience it the way they might have experienced it. You know, there's an irony in the fact that we're describing this even, because if someone, as we were mentioning earlier, if someone is called to this path of contemplation, they're going to enter that path. And the best way for them to progress along that path is to experience it. And so we might be trying to poke and prod people along. It might seem like that. That's that's really not the goal. Um, for me, I'm I'm just kind of like documenting the path, and I'm I, I barely see it, let alone have I really <laughs> embarked on it. But I can see it out there, and Amen. I'm trying. Um. So, yeah, we talked earlier about the approaches to the Beatitudes being rational versus, um, what, did you, what did you call it, contemplative or, or mystical? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just want to come back to that for a second. Um, this, this layering or this external that we do is a direct, uh, it's a direct effect of trying to make sense of the Beatitudes. And, and we tend to put those layers on things. And when we do that, and we're, we're very good about following the rules or the layers that we've added to the basics, then we look pretty good externally. But the heart hasn't necessarily changed. It might have, but it hasn't necessarily changed. So I just want to talk for a little bit about how do we operate, how do we live and operate within a ecclesiastical structure when the gospel itself is extremely simple as laid down in the Sermon on the Mount. What are your thoughts there, Shiloh? About how to exist within an ecclesiastical structure like the church or how to and how to exist here in a contemplative way? Yeah, because, you know, we get caught up so much in, in rule following that our external looks pretty good and we get puffed up a little bit, you know, and when in reality, uh, all those things are only meant to point the way back to the core of things, right? So when, when we have our, uh, traditions, commandments, whatever you want to call them, uh, doctrines that are a step further than the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, I think they're an attempt to point us back to Christ in most cases. Um, but they also have this secondary effect of causing us just a hair of pride, if we're honest, right? If we're, if we are really observant in our uh, obedience, we're going to naturally look good to those who are striving to be obedient as well. And that that pride can creep in. And so how do we avoid the contradictory elements of being filled with pride versus being emptied out? How do we operate within a structure that encourages us to put on our best, our Sunday best, figuratively speaking, while at the same time being so humble that we're allowing all the space that is needed for God to fill us? Well, I love that you said your Sunday best because uh, because I say Sunday, my Sunday costume. <laughs> I, put, <laughs> I put on my Sunday costume and go to church. Um, and I understand the way we do it and the why we do it. But I think in a lot of cases, what happens is we become so rote 
in our church experience that going to church and, you know, I show up 10 minutes early. I know what pew I sit in. I know if I'm going to sit on the right side or the left side where my family sits on a particular pew. Um, I know, you know, you're going to have the opening song, the opening prayer. You're going to have an announcements. You're going to sing the sacrament song, have the sacrament, have your speakers. You may have three. Usually we have two now because it's a, it's a pure hour block and not an hour and five, 10 minutes. Then I'm going to get up and I go to Sunday school. I'm going to go to priesthood. I pretty much know the structure and I leave. And so just putting myself into the situation, you know, you can just go through the process. And what I was noticing of my own discipleship is that, you know, we're a church that has quite a few symbols and rites and rituals. And we have them with, you know, with a sacrament, and as do many Christian faiths. We also have everything that we do in the temple, which is, is an, an additive that, that other faiths don't experience. And what I noticed of my own discipleship is that I, I was experiencing partaking of the sacrament, and that was, that was a powerful experience for me. So Sunday, on Sundays to partake of the sacrament, I, I felt something was going on in that process, in the process of, you know, of, of sitting there in the pew, listening to the prayer, you know, those moments when I'm actually, you know, really seeking to experience God and partaking of the sacrament. There is definitely an experience that is there that, that I, I, I love. However, there was a there was an experience, and I think I brought this up before. There's experience I had several years ago, where I had such a strong transformational moment over a course of a weekend, that I literally knew I was never going to be the same person again, and everything for me changed. Uh, the way I saw the world changed, the way I saw God changed, the way I saw myself and everybody else changed, and it was so revolutionary and powerful. That as like the old me is gone. It's it's literally gone. I will I will never be that person again. The way that I I can't go back to that. And it's and it was almost like what Joseph Smith said. I knew it. I knew God knew it, and I couldn't deny it. Kind of a thing. And the thought came to me, and it was just like this this this. And I'd never had a thought like this before. But the thought came to me. It says, "You have now for the first time experienced your baptism." And that landed for me really hard. Well, I, well, but it landed for me deep, shall I say. And it was a recognition that the symbol of baptism, I remember my baptism at eight years old. I have the restored gospel on my, both sides of my family going back until pioneer days. So I was baptized when I was eight, all of my family's Latter-day Saints. But I remember being baptized. I remember going out to eat that night. I remember my mom giving me these little baptismal you know, trinkets and explaining to me certain things. I remember how I felt. That was an experience for me, but yet it was still symbolic. And all symbolism, while the symbolism is an experience, we can't stop there. We actually have to push beyond the symbolism to experience what the symbolism represents. And when I recognize that the symbolism represents a death, that baptism is going down into the waters of chaos and oblivion, and it's coming up a brand new person. It's like life, it's, it's, it's literally what Christ says to the woman at the well. It's living water. It's life coming out of chaos. You know, the juxtaposition of living water there, I don't think I've, I fully appreciated until just a few years ago when I recognized that water is always symbolically complete and utter destruction or chaos or the, the, the entropy of the universe. And that as 
Christ comes up as order, life, this, this, this manifestation of, of something that comes out of chaos. And that's what baptism is. It's the coming forward of someone brand new. And so when that experience happened for me, it was, you just experienced what your baptism symbolizes. And all of a sudden I started realizing I want more of that in my life. I want to have those experiences more. And so I start looking for them. I start seeking them out. I start having moments where it's like, I want to have those. And I have. And the more that I seek for the experience, the deeper my relationship with God goes. And interestingly enough, the more contemplative I've become because I found that I can find those experiences the deeper I go into contemplation by simply looking up at the stars, by simply being aware of God, by simply gazing and, and being enveloped there, of sitting with God, as it were, as it says in the sermon. And so when you say for pride, my church service, and, and, and we've had this, this is like an amazing time for us to have this discussion because when have we, we've never had a moment like this in our church history where we are three going on four, sometimes five months on high, you know, there's some places that won't go back to church until August, September, maybe October. And so we're talking about five, possibly five, six months out of church. When has that ever happened? And so we're sitting now in these moments where we are having the sacrament in our homes, when we are bringing these experiences to our personal lives. We are now bringing all of those places that we've had those sacred experiences and rites and rituals in a particular place together as community. We are now having them in the community of our local families. And that has that moment for us to really bring the contemplation of being with God to our personal lives, I think has disrupted a lot of the mundane. You know, we get caught up in the mundane or we get caught up in the rote and the repetition. And I think that causes a lot of pride in thinking maybe we have something more than something else when we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what we claim we believe. My ward sent out a uh, questionnaire via email our first day returning to church is in like mid-July, and um, they basically sent out a poll, and it said, will you be returning to your ward? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> if if yes, great. If no, why not? You know, and then they, they listed like four reasons or something like that. And I just found it uh, interesting, you know, because I think what's happening to describe further this, this uh, moment in history I think what's happening is we, we got very systematized about our discipleship. It's, it's, it's attend this day, it's go to this class, it's do this thing, it's pay this tithe, it's do, and there's a system to it. It's very uh, laid out and structural, and, and you just follow it, and you're getting to heaven. And um, for years, general authorities, the prophets in the, in the scriptures that we read, they keep uh, pressing us to, it's not about the law. It's about the heart. Get out and start caring about people, relating to people. You know, I love the turn towards ministering, but the the second you measure it, the heart, I think, disappears, or at least it has that potential because there are going to be people who are in it for the number. They like to look good. And so they're going to go and do something because, well, it's either their duty or there's a little bit of pride in it. They like that 100% check mark next to their report with their elders quorum uh, pre, uh, presidency counselor or something like that. So the potential is there. 
for the spirit of what discipleship is supposed to be to be eradicated via pride. And so what we've seen in the last few months, which has been really interesting, is that the structure has been completely uh, changed, if not altogether removed. It's like, do everything in your home, do everything by the Spirit. You know, you might follow, come follow me, but how you do it, that's up to you. It's like, wow, okay. And so when that questionnaire comes around, and, you know, we've seen it in other forums as well, on social media and whatnot, where who's excited about going back to church? And half of the people that answer who are regular church attenders are like, gosh, not so much. And I think they're not expressing a distaste with their church whatsoever. I think what they're expressing is that for the first time in maybe their whole lives, their discipleship has become spirit-driven and contemplative versus structural and ordered. Yeah, that's a great observation. And and so I, I don't think necessarily they want to walk away from the old, but they're just so excited about incorporating the new into the old. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's powerful, you know, to to think about that and to, and to see what's really been going on here in the in these moments when we've been in our homes, and and really seeking to experience God and to have those moments of contemplation. And are we doing? And, and we're doing it as I did when I very first started coming to these moments of contemplation. I didn't even know what what I was doing. I didn't even know what it was. And and as I said when I quoted from the uh, the Wikipedia definition that I originally pulled from. It was like, that's what I'm experiencing. That's what's going on. I was having... Yeah, and I have to chuckle that we're such novices at this that we're pulling from Wikipedia. Like, I, I know! <laughs> don't, 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 to the audience, don't let that pass by without understanding that. We're no, using Wikipedia here. Literally <laughs> using Wikipedia, right? Because that's, that's what a novice... I, it's there, there's an experience that's going on, and it's revolutionary, and it's amazing, and... As soon as I start talking about it, it's not it. But I, I'm like, guys, guys, there, there's this experience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let, let's talk about that. We can have this kind of experience. Um, so in this, when, it, when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, and that's really where I wanted to go with the Sermon on the Mount, is really just to look at it that for the longest time, I've looked at it through my rational eyes. And only within the last few years have I even began to realize that this is a description of being more than it's a prescription of doing. You know, we talk, we talk about it, and that's where it is. As soon as we bring it into the realms of a, descript, as a, descript, a prescription of doing, that's where their rationalism begins, where we begin to relegate and dismiss, and we, we try to carve out places where we can keep our ego intact and yet still feel like we're following this. Or I've heard the arguments is like, well, the Sermon on the Mount is so radical, and I've heard this so many times from uh, from members that I've talked to, is that this isn't actually ever going to happen in this life. It's going to happen when the Savior comes back to implement it himself, because we can't possibly live this way. You know, this is too radical. And, and I, for me, I was like, well, if Jesus is giving us a way of acting and being that's not going to counteract wickedness and is actually completely worthless— then what value has it at all? You know, if this if this is the best God has got to combating evil, if this is just something that he's going to show up and he has to enforce it himself, then why do we even worship that God? 
And as I, so for me, that never landed for me. I understand that peace has been taken from the earth. I understand that we are living in the day and age of the end of days and end of the latter days when all of the calamities and the catastrophes are supposed to happen. But as Latter-day Saints, we were commanded to build Zion. And in fact, in section 101, it says that God has given us literally everything to build Zion, never to be thrown down again, if those who simply call themselves by his name actually kept the commandments. Well, and to simplify it even a step further, what's the what's the accepted general Mormon dictionary definition of Zion? Usually someplace in Missouri. <laughs> I was going to say the pure in heart, but that's actually probably more accurate in terms of the dictionary definition. Um, yeah, no, but I mean, if it if it really is the pure in heart, I mean, where does that tie? I mean, how how well does that tie back into the the Beatitudes. Yeah, it's the, the same pure thing. pure in heart. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. We've we've been stripped of ego, our own desires and motivations removed. Yeah. And we're we're allowing God to work within us. Yeah. That's the only way we'd ever have purity of heart. Cuz nobody is pure. There was only one that was pure. So yeah. how could we have purity of heart without God within us, without God working within us? So here we have the scriptures, and we can we can rationalize the scriptures all day long. But you bring up, and it's something that I I came to because of you. I was you know you're the one who presented me with it, and uh, you have your own Facebook group on Lectio Divina, and it's a way of being able to come to the scriptures in a different kind of way than necessarily as an apologetical way to where we're trying to argue a point or trying to argue a doctrine or trying to argue a, uh, a truth that we think is there or we want to defend or even trying to rationally understand the context in the, and uh, the content of the scriptures here. But what, what is Lectio Divina? What, what is that? We talked about it well, a little I, bit I last have time. To, I have to chuckle a little bit because in our first uh, opening introductory ep- episode or whatever, you mentioned I love apologetics, and one of my friends picked up on that. He's like, "What does that even mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> you love apologetics? <laughs> Who loves apologetics?" Well, but I, that's what I had to explain to him. That's where you were coming from, not where you were. Who yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you so very much for clarifying that. So, <laughs> so yeah, okay. lectio divina is not apologetics. It is Nothing not apologetics. Like yeah. yeah. So, so let me let me clarify a few things. Then, um, I have come from a world of of apologetics and of being like a, a pseudo apologist, um, I I can argue enough to get myself into trouble and enough that I can usually get myself out of trouble. Sometimes as like, huh, maybe I shouldn't argue that anymore, or <laughs> unless I knew something. But nowadays, uh, so that's where I've come, and it's and it's like a pig. It's like he's like never try to wrestle a pig in the mud. It likes it. And, and so that's what I was, that's where I've been, isn't it? And I, I don't want to use apologetics as a, as a pejorative. It's not, it's for though it's, it's a, it's a discussion worthy of its, of its merit. And when it's done well, I, I believe it's worthy of what it, of what it is and what it's supposed to be. The thing is, is I have never once in my own experience of apolog- apologetics, it has never brought me once into the wondrous awe of God. Never. I, I could not agree more. Like I've, I've, I've wrestled with that too. I spent so much time, you know, but ultimately it devolves into an argument of 
you know, one, one person's opinion versus another, because so many of these things are not objective and there might be some that are, you know, but ultimately it's someone's desires that inform so much the position they take. There's, there's such a lack of humility in it for a lot of people. I'm not saying for everyone. And like, I'm like you, I've, I've been very interested in some, maybe what you'd call professional or full-time apologists that have, I'm not, I'm torn a little bit. I want to say they've done good work, but at the same time, I think a lot of times what they do is they've just set up different camps on opposing sides of a battlefield. And I, I just don't know that that's productive. Yeah. You know what? Uh, we talk so about I... defending the faith, but the faith itself doesn't need defending. <laughs> you just, you just said what I was going to say. So we have this uh, thing about being defenders of the faith. And I think that phrase has done probably more disservice to our actual connection to God than uh, that perhaps any other. And it's ironic because it's about defending it and it may have been itself be damaging. You know, I was reading, uh, I'm rereading again, the stages of faith by James Fowler, where he talks, you know, it's, it's kind of like the psychological stages of adult development where we come to our faith in different stages. And he starts off by distinguishing between faith and belief where he says a lot of the times we cross these over and we shouldn't. Whereas faith is, if you ask someone's faith and, and, I'll, and I just have happened to have it here next to the table and I, and I reached down to grab it, but he says that I caricature here, but the point I'm trying to bring out is one that Smith, another scholar develops more thoroughly. So pervasive is the impact of the secularizing consciousness that even religionists and persons of faith have tended to accept a culture's truncation of belief into assent to a set of propositions or a commitment to a belief system. In other words, what he's saying is that faith has become synonymous with the belief system. Many modern Westerners, when encountering someone from another religious tradition, are likely to ask, what do you or they believe? As if that were the real question. Smith's careful work with the cumulative impact I can scarcely hope to communicate here helps us to see that curiosity about what they believe to reach any significant level of depth has to become not a question of belief, but of faith. Because faith, he distinguishes that it's the source and motivation by which you place every, your entire heart. It's the foundation of your entire passion, your entire way of being, what moves and acts and promotes and pushes you? What is that thing that is the most deepest, sacredest part of your being that is your source for action? And that's your faith. And so belief is far more axiomatic. It's it, or not axiomatic. It's far more um, descriptive of a type of um, propositional statements as to dogmas or to theological understandings of a particular thing. Faith is this soul. It's a very intimate question. When you really ask someone their faith, you are literally it's a principle you are asking, of action. It's a, yeah, it's like Joseph Smith said. It's a principle of action that cuts right down to the very heart it's of the what thing makes that moves them. You. Yeah. yeah, what makes them them? And so he says, if faith is reduced to belief in creedal statements and doctrinal formulations, then sensitive and responsible persons are likely to judge that they live and they must live without faith. In other words, if we make faith statements of belief, we've robbed the entire essence of what faith is, and we don't live with faith. We just live in our compliance and our adhering to a particular set of beliefs. It's literally 
what you know when God came down and when God said they they do honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. That's literally what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. He's talking about they have these creeds, they have these statements, they have these declarations about propositions about what you believe, and they think that's faith, but it's literally not. Faith is the essence of what who you are, and and belief is this other thing. So if we make faith belief, then we literally rob ourselves of everything that faith is. So let me jump into what you asked about on the Lectio Divina and what that is. I won't spend too much time. Maybe we could put that in, in a future podcast by itself but um oh, absolutely essentially uh it's it's a mode of getting us into the mindset of contemplation um by starting if you do it sequentially with with the scriptures the word of god and if we approach the scriptures with an empty open humble heart and a willingness to let them reveal whatever it is they reveal to us then something will come to us as we're reading something will come to us and it will strike us in a way that we weren't expecting. Well, Lectio Divina will say, um, let's be let's be somewhat thoughtful about this. Take that thing that struck you in a different way that you were not expecting and use it as a tool for uh, understanding and uh, experiencing the reality of God in your life. So it's it's taking that thing that struck you and meditating about it, praying about it, and then ultimately seeing it in the world via experience in different ways in your daily walk, whether it's at work, school, home, uh, in recreation, whatever the case may be, it's, it's experiencing whatever you needed to learn about whatever it is you read that struck you in that different way. It's a spirit-led process all the way. And it's so completely different from a scholarly or rational approach to um, scripture study and scripture reading because it uh, it tries to divorce what it is you learn about a topic from your own training and education and uh, desires, ego, all that stuff. And as soon as you divorce it from those things and allow yourself to be filled like an empty vessel with the Spirit, then new insights come. And uh, that's, I think, the beginning. Uh, and this is how I began in the mode of contemplation in the first place, was a friend introduced me to this uh, this method. Um, and so it's been a couple of years, but uh, it's radically changed how I approach the scriptures completely. You mentioned in our prior conversation before the podcast started how... You know, our Sunday school classes, our Come Follow Me manuals, they're, they're organized topically. And that's how our scriptures are largely organized as well, is topically, right? Because a lot of most people know the chapter headings didn't exist when, you know, these things were being written down on tablets or whatever, or metal sheets or whatever. So, you know, it wasn't like someone wrote down, hey, you know, Alma preaches to this group and that. It, there, was no, there was no chapter headings. There was, you know, they weren't split up along topic lines. Uh, we tend to read things chronologically, but of course we know our scriptures are not chronological. They bounce all over the place. Even the most correct of books has massive shifts forward and back in time. And so we might think we're reading things in a specific order, but we're losing a lot of the spirit of what it is we're reading and what we're supposed to learn from them. And so Lectio Divina, uh, 
literally means in Latin, it's divine reading. And that's, that's what you're doing. You're reading it in a new way with new eyes and a new heart, trying to uh, pull from it whatever God wants to teach you about it. And if you do it even more focused through the lens of Christ, the what you might call the cruciform lens or uh, that hermeneutic in that approach, then it opens things up even more. You take a story that might have been figuratively about one topic, or at least that's what you've been taught the whole time, and you put it through a Christ, a, a Christ, a cruciform hermeneutic, a Christ-based hermeneutic, and it might completely change it for you. Anyway, that's that's what Lectio Divina is about. And we can get into that in more depth later, but that's a that's been something that really moved me towards more of a contemplative life. Yeah, I've when you first approached and and had uh, brought up Lectio Divina, I had no idea what it was. And this was another one of those contemplative moments when I realized that I was already starting to do this. I was coming at it, but from a completely different direction. And I hadn't fully instituted it, but I had started to come to these, this way of being with the scriptures. Because for the longest time, the way that I came to scripture was with an assumption that these are the words of the prophets. Because these are the words of the prophets, these constitute celestial principles. Because these are celestial principles, everything here with all the way that people are doing it is the celestial way to do it. So you use the scriptures as a way to justify a celestial ethic, and then that presents the way that, that justifies the way you can Bible bash, right? Because it's my way, and this is the way it is, and this is the way it is, and here's the doctrine, and here's how I can prove it. And that's never fruitful. And in fact, when we teach missionaries to go out with the scriptures, we don't teach, we teach them to not to Bible bash, and we teach them how to try to get people to feel the spirit. We're already trying to do this as a church. We don't call it Lectio Divina, but there's already this process that we're, we're trying to teach as well and instruct and to bring the spirit with it. I know when I've invited missionaries into my own home and they, they give that little, you know, little micro lesson for like 15 minutes and they visit with you and it's a fun little experience with the kids. Uh, they're all, they always ask, you know, how does this, how does this make you feel? Or how, do, what is your experience like when we read this? What comes to your mind? So they're already following this path. It's just a different way of being able to call it in a more formal way than we do as a church. But when, when I've come to it with the scriptures myself, and I, we, I think I brought it up last, uh, the last episode, is that I have often been the kind of person where I'll sit down with a question and I'll ask God and I'll, I'll get some kind of answer or eventually even in the moments or some place, I'll get an answer. And then I'm like, awesome. And then I'm up off my feet. I'm getting a plan together and I'm out implementing it. Or I'll sit down and I'll be like, okay, what do I need to work on next? And something comes to mind. I'm like, okay, yeah, I definitely need to work on that next. And then I get up and I'm off and I'm on my way again. And what I've noticed of that process, though, is that I've robbed myself of such a grand and glorious experience with God. And Lectio Divina really brings that into sharp focus for me. Because when when I come to Scripture now... Reading it is less reading it for its uh, apologetic value, as it were, or for or maybe prescriptive it's, value. Yes, it's prescriptive value, exactly. And it's far more powerful for me that when I read through it, the question that I ask myself a lot of the times when I'm reading now is, what is present for me here? 
what is present? What is present? What is what what does God have that I can be able to be partaking of here? And then it's a meditation on that. So you I read through it and then it's like, what's present for me here? And you have and it, it's like this quiet meditation, like a pondering over what's going here, where it's not a mental activity. It's not something that I'm mentally trying to rationalize. It's simply one that I come down into a moment of just sitting with the divine. So this kind of meditative process, and what what comes from that is almost like a conversation with God, because mm-hmm. then at that at that point I be it, it's you begin to experience something, and then the minute you respond to to what is coming for you next is that praying version uh, or that praying that praying element, and all of a sudden you realize that your meditation has now become a benediction. It's now literally become a prayer. And it, it like and it, and it just rolls over effortlessly, and in that place, all of a sudden, now I'm brought in. Now that I'm in this conversation with God, now this is a contemplative moment when now I'm actually being in awe, and it's not even having to do with like the rationalism of the scriptures. It's just to being brought into the presence of God. It's like it's almost like the experience of going to the temple. When you go through the temple and you you have all of the you know the, the rational steps that you have to take you know you move from this seat to that state you do this thing you do that thing but then the ultimate point of the whole process is you just go and sit in the celestial room in a room yeah you just go sit in a room that's exactly right and that, By, I, I, it quietly quietly exactly right and yeah. and for, for me the temple ceremony is is the whole process of lectio divina. It's, we can read, we can interpret, we can come to all of the stories, but is that the most important part or is it simply the experience? Because ultimately in the celestial room, there is no more story. There is no more allegory. There is nothing. It is simply being there. And, and whenever you talk about, whenever you ask anybody who's been in the celestial room, it's just, what is present for you in this moment? Yeah, if, and that's really well, where I find yeah, you shouldn't be thinking story. about your work and how quickly you can get out of there. You shouldn't be thinking about how big of a screw up you are. You know, the people who sit there and just experience that moment get the most out of it. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's a shame that for so long, I guess the temples must have been super busy or something because – You'll have I've I've heard experiences uh, of experiences and I've experienced it myself where someone has literally moved me out of that room. It's like okay, you've been here long enough. <laughs> yeah, there's another group coming too. in behind you, and it's like, wow. Okay, well I'll have to come back. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, and, and that that somewhat destroys the the point of what that all the all the steps that you just talked about, you know. Um, leading up to it, and then we're just yeah. I mean, you spend what two hours leading up to it, and then once you get there, it's like five minutes. I'm counting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've, I got my eyes on you, lurker. So, <laughs> so in this, you know, we've uh, we've talked a lot about the, the Sermon on the Mount and contemplation, and and hopefully this is beginning to make more sense as to what it is we're experiencing and. The journey we're going on, and as we say, as we said in the intro, it's it's basically us documenting our journey. It's it's saying this is what we're experiencing and opening up, 
and hopefully finding out what you're experiencing as well. And in this, one of the final things that I I thought to talk about, Riley, is the use of the Sermon on the Mount as a hermeneutic. And you and you brought this up. Whereas a, a hermeneutic is basically a lens and a filter by which we we interpret we interpret Scripture, right? Um, it has a lot to do with exegesis as well. The uh, what Christ talks about here with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is very much has to deal with our soul and our way of being as opposed to simply a rational ethic of things that we do that we can carve out and make exceptions for and basically make powerless. And we, we go on with our egoistic lives, never having actually changed anything, but that we are now, you know, because we've been able to relegate, you know, that doesn't exactly sound right. That doesn't exactly sound right. I'm going to carve out this niche for myself where I don't have to change. And I can say that I believe I love my enemies, but I'm not going to let them kill me kind of a thing. And so we, we carve out these little niche and these phrases for ourselves. But Riley, for you, what has this Lectio Divina and this contemplation done? And I know you've spent time with the Sermon on the Mount as well. But when we talk about using the Sermon on the Mount as the lens by which we then come to and contemplate Scripture, have you had any experience with that? Have you had anything that any yeah. moments when that has changed you? Yeah, I think generally speaking, it's just made me more sympathetic of all the characters that we encounter in Scripture. Um, you know, they're going through a process that uh, I now see as less normative, prescriptive, and more descriptive, as you mentioned before. And it's a it's a process and a life that I'm also experiencing. And so I've become uh, a lot more, I guess, um, forgiving and sympathetic to all the characters throughout Scripture and seeing them as I see myself with hopefully forgiving eyes of because I've, I've got my own issues. And and so I look at that and, and looking at the Sermon on the Mount and the, the gentleness with which he treats the lowest rungs of society. Those are the people who followed him, right? I mean, it wasn't super rich didn't care what he had to say. He asked a rich man, you know, or the rich man asked him, what lack I yet? And he told him, sell your riches and follow me. He didn't follow him. So the people that are listening to Christ, for the most part, they're they're the lower caste of society whether it's economically or socially or emotionally they're they're in some sort of distress and relating to that makes me more sympathetic to all the characters throughout scripture that were experiencing distress and may have acted out in the wrong way and i no longer have to look at you know a character in the old testament or something like that 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 acts out in anger against someone else. I know I no longer have to look at that and say, well, that's, I guess that's acceptable. I guess that's the way we do things or a character in the book of Mormon that, uh, you know, who's battling their own inner demons. I think of the example of Moroni and Pahoran, you know, where, where Moroni kind of lashes out against Pahoran and, and Pahoran is pretty, he's pretty patient about things. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm, I guess I'm a little more, uh, my eyes are opened a bit to that, you know, because I've, I've acted out too, out of, out of anger or maybe a lack of information and uh, give people some space to be corrected and, uh, and allow them to improve. So, uh, you know, realizing that we're all going through this journey, we're all making mistakes, 
and the invitation from Christ is is one of come follow me and just be with me. And, you know, it, it's usually the humble and it's the outcast that follow him because they got nothing else. They can't rely on their money. They can't rely on their social status. But they've heard something that's sweet to them, that, that tastes sweet, and they're, they've just decided to follow that. And so it can be difficult for people who live in, in, you know, as privileged circumstances as we live in to accept that invitation. But that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's an invitation to be with him. And I see a lot of struggling people in the scriptures that are trying their best, some failing, some succeeding, but uh, it's it's the story of my life. Same story. Yeah, I had a Facebook post. You know, you brought up the, the rich man, and there was a, a Facebook post that I'd made a little bit ago where uh, a longtime friend, I, I knew her back in uh, when I was living in Utah, and she was part of the, the Liberty Circles. Her name is Joyce Mitchell. She's a, gr- a great lady. She had talked about that um, that young man and about how he had lived his life in such a transactional way that he was simply, you know, you know, God, I've done this and 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 I've, this and I've kept the commandments since I've been this tall. What's you know what's here for me? And Christ asked him to come from that transactional way of being into simply following him. And it, and it seems to be for me, and for me, the way I come to read that is that Christ is asking him to come into a moment of contemplation of just being with Christ. Come follow me. It's not come do what I do. Not It's not come teach. It's not. It, he's not giving him any new commandment. It's simply... No, it's an invitation. Yeah. It's not something that is... Uh, he's not trying to provoke this rich young man. He's simply saying... In order to follow me, you're not relying on your riches anymore. You don't need them. Give them to people who do. And then come follow me, and and you'll find exactly what you're looking for. But that's the invitation that's so difficult to accept if you're living in a privileged circumstance. That's why it's tougher for the camel to enter through the eye of the needle right there. Yeah, He's got his his stores of water and his uh, humps, and he's not going to fit, you know? (laughs) And I... I, I sympathize with that. It's I understand it. It's it's a difficult path to walk to no longer rely upon our knowledge, our social status, our economic status, uh, whatever privileged status we enjoy, whatever that is in any circumstance. It's difficult not to rely upon that privileged status. And I know that's a loaded word as well, but it is what it is. Um, but it's difficult to not rely upon the privileged status and instead have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust him enough to actually follow him rather than follow the comfortable path of my my privilege. Yeah, well said. Well said. There, there's uh, there's just so much that we have to do to unpacking. And what I didn't bring it up with the Beatitudes, and I wish I would have, but uh, just to clarify— one of the things that I love about the Beatitudes, and it's a liter- it's a rhetorical device, and a literary device that Matthew uses, and then it makes its way into the Book of Mormon, that really brings a lot of humility for me, is that the first Beatitude about being poor in spirit, and the last Beatitude about being persecuted, they both receive the same blessing. So it's, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and what scholars have done in, in, in bringing this out and in, in demonstrating this 
is it's a rhetorical device to try to signify in this way that the first and the last are connected with the same blessing, that you're not going to get anything better at the end of your journey than you are at the beginning, that really it's all one eternal round. It's not, it, it sets itself up as a hierarchy to where it's like, you got to do this one, then you got to do this one, I got to do this one. But lest you believe that just because you're at level six in one area of your life, that you're not at level one in most other areas, and then begin to compare yourself to everyone else. But rather, let's turn this whole thing on its on its side, connect the beginning to the end, make this one eternal round to where you realize that this whole emptying and being and mourning and meekness and being filled and, and all the way through is not a one-time event. It is something that we are literally doing every single day, as are everyone else. And we may we may be to a place where we have found peace in one part of our lives, but we are now mourning something else, and so is everyone else. So it creates this natural empathetic way of being that we cannot uh, compare and contrast with others. Well, and when you come out of whatever it is you're relying upon right now, when you, when you come out of that battle on existence and enter into a pure in heart existence, it's not immediate bliss. I, I don't believe. I'm not saying I've I've actually accomplished this. All I'm saying is the little glimpses I've had into it there's a tremendous amount of mourning. Yeah. You know, you're giving up some kind of lifestyle that for your whole life you trusted in, right, rightly or wrongly, like that you're giving it up. And that's a that's definitely uh, a death. That's mourning for sure. Yeah. I mean, and this goes deeper than, because I've given up addictions to things like caffeine before, and then I've reintroduced them back into my life. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's literally painful to give up those kinds of things where, you know, there's a physical aspect to some of these things. But when we're really talking about the contemplative moments, we're going deeper than just giving something physically up. Now, obviously, giving something physically up, when people join the church, sometimes they have to give up the word of wisdom things, right? No no smoking or drinking and no coffee. And for a lot of people, that, that becomes a, a much of a part of their lives. And as someone who's experienced the rounds with caffeine before, I can definitely sympathize and uh, and find empathy there so but it's it's so much deeper because it really becomes we start to reflect upon our inner self and the world around us and all of the institutions all of the groups everything that we find identity to and we found connection with it's letting go of everything and that gets really scary really fast and so reading through the beatitudes for me really becomes uh, itself a mercy that god is telling me listen let it all go. I know you're going to be afraid and you're going to mourn and it's going to be intense, but let me tell you what's, what's going to happen and where I'm going to help you out with. And for me, it becomes a mercy to be able to see that kind of description of what's going to happen. Um, that God is always there. He's always with me. He's always, God loves me and, and all things more than I will ever love myself. And he's, it's, 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 I love to see God in the terms of the prodigal son's father, you know, for seeing him from a way off came running. There was no other element or, or emotion there, except I am always running towards you. And that's really the place where I begin to see God is that all of my indiscretions, because I, I think for a long time, I looked at God as someone who, even though I know he loved me could feel disappointed or could feel, feel, um, 
you know, there was an absence there or, or like a necessary universal law of absence that he had to leave, not because he wanted to, but just because he couldn't, you know, his presence couldn't look upon this right. with the least agreement. He would cease and, to be God. Yeah. Yeah. Or he would cease to be God. Right. And at some point I, it just clicked in my head of saying, do I, do I worship a God that is so weak that my sin drives him away? And it's like, do I have that kind of power over God through my sin? And it's like, no, 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 no. I've got to reevaluate what I think I'm thinking about. Whereas God is always present. He's always there. He's always running towards me. I may consciously take myself out of the communication with God, but God has never left me. And so that that was kind of a revolutionary thing, at least for me, in this contemplative way in, in sitting with God is something that came out and was manifest for me um, that I begin to see now. And, and that's how the Sermon on the Mount has begun to impact my life. Because as I see the sermon as a descriptive as opposed to a prescriptive way, um, I begin to come more into communion with God. It, it's more of a communication and it's more of a, I am here and I get to kind of exist in the presence of God whenever I want and whenever I'm just brought into it. And sometimes I find myself even being brought into it when I don't consciously seek to bring myself into it, which for me has become the most beautiful moments of my life. Well, that's good stuff, bud. Well, uh, you're going to have to figure out a way since you're the techie side of this to split this up into three episodes or something. Cause we've, <laughs> we've gone on a little bit, but uh, I'm really excited for future and what we'll be discussing as we dig in, uh, dig in a little bit deeper on some of these topics, but this was a great one for me. Absolutely. For me too. Well, thank you everybody for listening thus far. Please share any feedback or any comments that you have, any possible ideas for future episodes you'd be interested in hearing about. And we look forward to all the feedback that you give us. For now, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Riley Risto. Thank you for listening. <laughs>